Okay, so as we kick off in the book of John, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, uh, the first thing that we just need to be reminded is John, once again, uh, as, as Ken taught us last week, John is writing this so that we'd believe that Jesus is the Christ, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's really interesting in our culture right now, um, we see this brand really of spirituality uh, that really revolves around um, believing in belief. Uh, In other words, you find what you believe in from a spiritual perspective, and 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 that's the arrival, is to find something that you just can put your belief in. Whether that's yourself, we see a lot of like, like I believe in me and people are like, that's great. They have a belief in themselves, uh, whether it's uh, in a relationship, whether it's in an occupation or a goal of some kind, we're, we, we applaud that uh, and we say, good, they're, they're on the right path or, or just something that they, that they have their faith in. And, and as, we, as we look at this, it's so interesting how we promote that and yet we de- de-emphasize the object of that faith. In other words, um, you know, we're just happy that they found something versus really going, what is the object of that faith? What is the object of their belief system? Because as, as we just look at our culture right now, what's so interesting is it's a, it's a culture that is increasingly spiritual and yet it's hesitant to commit to saying there's one absolute truth. And, and when, we, when, we, when we talk about Jesus... This is very, very true. When we think about if we just did a poll of people in the area and and who they would believe Jesus uh, is, it's really interesting. Time Magazine on their cover, uh, I'm going to date myself, I think it was in 1988. Uh, Don't raise your hand if you were born. They they did a title of Who Was Jesus? And And they asked some really interesting questions about who Jesus actually was. And, 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 and some of the thoughts that, that you see out there today is, is I hear Jesus was, he was a philosopher. He was a, a good man with important things uh, to say. Um, I hear he was just another, another prophet pointing people to God. And so as, as we think about this, um, it, 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 it shows why it's so important that we look at the first words of the Gospel of John and why we see that they're so vital and important for us. Because they answer the questions of who is Jesus and why did he come to earth. And so in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we'll look at these first. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So in verse 1, Jesus is given this unique title, really unique title. He's called what? He's called the Word. Now in the Greek, this uh, the Word is called Logos. And, and, and when we look at just the makeup of this word, the concept of, of, of just the word as he's alluded to here, this logos, it, it's filled with meaning for both Jewish and Greek uh, people. To the Greeks, the, the logos was, was the impersonal abstract principle of reason and order in the universe, a, a creative force and, and also the source of wisdom for them. So to the Greeks, John presented Jesus as the personification and embodiment of this, the word, of this logos. The word for, the word of the Lord also was was significant for his Jewish audience, as they would no doubtly look to the Old Testament theme. 
And, and, and they would see that, that the word of the Lord, as it's alluded to, it was the expression of divine power and wisdom. So when, when we say the word of the Lord, it was this expression that they would hear of, of divine power and wisdom. And, and so Jesus presented, or John presented Jesus to his Jewish readers as the incarnation of divine power and revelation. So Jesus initiated the new covenant. He instructs believers unites them into a spiritual temple, revealed God to man. He judges those who reject him, directs the church through those he's raised up to lead it. He was the agent of creation and inspired the scripture written by the New Testament writers through the Holy Spirit whom he sent. And when we just think about words, words are so powerful I mean, I, I feel like, especially like even you think of everything just this week, um, words are such a powerful thing. Words have the ability to move people, to move a nation. Uh, to, to, we think, think of the power in our own lives, you know, as, as we look at um, just even our family dynamics and with the holidays coming and, and the power of words that, that, that either we want to say or that have been said to where when we get together as a family, things aren't the same. Because of what has been said. For those of you that uh, have walked through middle school, you still, for some of you, bear the scars of words that were said to you in middle school. And so we see this power of of words, and and we see how it's even moved history from some of the great leaders along the way. But as powerful as words can be, there's no match for the power of the word of God. In Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So I want you to think about that. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. I'll tell you what, my breath is not doing anything productive. <laughs> it's incredible to think just what uh, this means. In Genesis 1, 3, it says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. In Psalm 107.20, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. When we see creation and salvation, they both came through the word of God. And God reveals his power and his will through his word. And there's no greater revelation of the character and the nature of the Father than through Jesus. Jesus reveals God's mind. He expresses God's will, displays God's perfections, exposes God's heart. He is, as we see here, he is the word. You know, the first three words of this book, they echo the first three words that we see at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning. And, and what John is doing is John is connecting Jesus with creation, claiming Jesus existed before creation. Jesus existed before the world began, before there was even time. Jesus was there. When God created the world out of nothing, Jesus was, it says, with him. This was the testimony of Jesus of himself. In John chapter 17, verse 5, as he's talking to the Father, he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's so much more than a good person, a wise teacher. See, this teaches that Christ's personality and deity 
were without beginning. He didn't become a person for the first time as a baby in Bethlehem. Nor did he somehow become a god after his resurrection as some teach today. This is what sets Jesus apart from these you know, so-called gods that we create in our own minds or that we build. Um, Jesus has always existed, and that's such a powerful thing. In the beginning, the word was already there in existence. He is God from all eternity. In his pr- eternal pre-existence, the word was, it says, with God. Now that phrase in the Greek, it means far more than merely uh, that the word existed with God. It gives the picture of two personal beings facing one another and engaging in intelligent discourse. Okay, so from all eternity, Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, was with the Father in deep, intimate fellowship. It was not just this, you do what you do, I'll do what I do. That's not what it's talking about here when when it talks about he was with God. He not only dwelt with God, but then we get to the really defining moment But because he says what? That he himself was God. The word, it says, was God. He is of the same character and quality as God. Everything that can be said about God can be said about Jesus. We call this the Trinity. The understanding that there is one God, but the one God exists in three persons. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The word is God. Just just saying that is one of the many clear statements in John that Jesus is God. And this phrase is so critical in distinguishing the Christian faith from other religions because John declares that Christ is not one of many gods, but is God himself. He's not a God. There's, there's, There's religions that take that and literally just put an A in there. And if you're not careful, you just read it and you go along with it. But but he's not saying he's a God. No, he's the God. He he's not God-like. No, he is God. And that is the testimony of Scripture over and over again that Jesus is God. As God, Jesus was not only present at creation, but we see what? He was active in creation. He created all things. Now, this includes uh, humans. This includes all the animals, uh, the, the, the planets, angels, all things visible and invisible. Without him, it says, nothing was made that's been made. Paul talks, uh, alluding to Jesus, says this in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And that's big. And then the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And in Revelation 3, 14, it presents Jesus as, it calls him the Amen, the the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. 
And then we see one day, later on in Revelation, there one day Jesus will be worshipped in heaven with these words in, in Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Do we get it? Do we see what it says about who Jesus is? The power of the word here. In John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, as we continue, it says this. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in him was life. Now, this doesn't simply mean that he was alive, that he was breathing. No, but that he was and is still the source of all life. The word here includes both physical and spiritual life. See, when we are born, we receive physical life. When we're born again, we receive spiritual life. Both come from him. And as we, as we have seen in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, without Jesus, it says, we are dead in our sin. We're dead in that. Now, what does it mean to be dead in sin? Because that doesn't sound very good. Um, that that, that, that kind of, man, that's, that's tough to even hear. What we see, though, you guys, with death, death at its core, death is fundamentally separation. That's what death is. Death is separation. At death, the spiritual part of a person, their soul, is separated from the physical. This is, this is very evident if you go to a memorial, you go to a funeral, and, and, and maybe there's an open casket and, and the person's body is in there. When you attend that memorial, people are mourning over the separation that has taken place between them and their loved one. There's a separation that they're mourning over. And when you look into that coffin and you see uh, a, a body, a, a, a person there, um, when you look into that, though the body is still present, the part of that person that really makes them who they are the part you can't see anymore is no longer there it's gone their soul has been separated from their body you guys if if physical death is the separation of the soul from the body then spiritual death is the separation of the soul from god and physical death is the picture of the reality of spiritual death. You guys, like when, when, you, when you think about, when, when, when you see people mourning over the loss of somebody, and, and whenever you go to a memorial for somebody, it's always the best time to preach the gospel because people are being confronted with the reality of that separation. They're being confronted with the reality uh, that, that there is going to be an end to this. And, 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 they're, and they're being forced to confront with where do they lie? What is their hope? What is their faith? What is their belief resting in? Because they're seen and they're confronted with this separation that is going to happen. And so we see that, that the physical death, it really paints this picture of the spiritual death. And, and, and so for us, how do we receive this? Well, right here, right now, our sin separates us from a sinless and perfect God. That separation is made permanent 
after physical death when God, the just judge, will punish sin with eternal separation from him in a place called hell. And I know that's not the rah-rah, pick-me-up sermon you were hoping on this Sunday of all Sundays, but that's what it is. Like he's a just, like, like there's going to be eternal separation there, but here's where it gets good. You ready? Jesus came to give us life, to reconcile us with God, changing both our, our present condition and our future destination. Now, how do you receive this spiritual life? By placing your faith and trust in Jesus. In John chapter 11, 25, um, Jesus is, 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 is on the scene here as his friend Lazarus has passed away. And, and he's responding here. And he says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I want you to think about that. Think about that. Let's read it again. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He says, I am the resurrection. That's what Jesus is saying. So he will reconcile you and me with his father. You will no longer be separated from God and cut off, but welcomed in as sons and daughters into everlasting life, into the kingdom of God. Jesus takes God's judgment on your sin and his victory over death becomes yours. Now we're like, oh, that's great. Are you kidding you guys, did you hear what I just said? Like, like what Jesus, Jesus takes God's judgment on yours, on my sin, and his victory over death becomes yours. Now, um, I'm going to say some things, and it might bother you a little bit, but we're just going to hang tight, okay? There's grace in this room. I'm going to be honest. I am a Notre Dame fan with football. It's okay. We're honest, authentic, and I'm from South Bend, so I'm allowed to root for them. They had a big game last night. And some of you Duck fans, you're like, we had a big game too. And, and, and you can apply this to you as well. But for me, I'm just going to use me as an example because I'm preaching. And I'm, I'm, I'm watching this, and at the end, when they won in double overtime. Now, they won the game, right? They played. I didn't play. I was at my house. But guess what? When they won, I was jumping up and down, acting like a fool, and saying what? We won. We won. Some of you last night, you were acting like a fool with, with the Ducks. And if you're an Oregon State fan, we'll still pray for you. But for the Duck fans, you guys were just like, we won. You were enjoying the victory, right? Oh my goodness, this is a rough one. It's a rough group, okay? Let's go. You're like, I don't know what happened last night. You were celebrating that victory as if it was your victory. And that's what I was doing. I was acting a fool. You guys, listen. By the authority of Scripture, by what Jesus has done for us, his victory becomes our victory. He shares his victory with you and me so that um, as a result of that, you and I get to walk in victory and we should be living daily, waking up daily, acting like fools because of that victory. Because we now are able to identify with the victorious risen Savior. 
And so his victory over your sin, my sin, over all of that nastiness, all of that, that he went to the cross, that he came out victorious over, he invites you into that. He allows you to be a part of that victory. And you guys, you want to talk about a a time when we should be living in victory, when we should be modeling what this looks like? It is crazy how so often we're the ones that are looking defeated. And it's like, what are we doing? We're the ones with our heads down. Well, what are we going to do? I don't know, man. Like, it's, it's over, and, and this isn't going to work out. And I don't know. I don't know if God still sees us and all this. And it's like, we should be the fools for Jesus because of victory. That's part of your victory. If you're a Jesus follower, every day you wake up is victory. When you put your head on your pillow at night and close your eyes, and even if you don't open those eyes again, victory. And it's not because of you. Once again, you didn't do it. He did it on your behalf, and he brings you into that. And, and, and so we look at this like, like as a Christian, is, a Christian is someone who was dead in sin but has now received life. Someone who was cut off from God but now has been reconciled. Jesus came to earth to call people from death to life to a living, vibrant relationship with God through faith in him. And those who believe, he makes alive and he gathers into community like this that bears the fruit of his life. And then together, we, as we live this out, declare his life. See, Jesus brought life to the spiritually dead and he brought, it says, light to the spiritually darkened. See, though it's a different metaphor, it it, it pictures the same truth. We need to be rescued from the domain of darkness, and we're powerless to do anything about it. And Jesus came to earth because only he could meet that need. We could never come to know what God desires and expects from us unless Jesus revealed it, right? We would be wandering around in the darkness trying to figure out our own truth, our own opinions, our own thoughts, and and whatever just felt the best or seemed the most right to us based upon either how we were raised, our family or our culture that's what we did and we were literally wandering around in darkness you guys um i don't know what you think when you walk into this room but i'm telling you right now i know a lot of the stories in this room and and it was that it was darkness until he came in and 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 so you guys like like why are we shocked that culture is so dark why are we shocked that people are striving after things, uh, you know, and, and, and not holding on to truth? Like, because there's darkness here. Now, now, here's what's so interesting. Because we like to paint lightness and darkness as what? As opposites, right? But, but the reality is this. Darkness is simply the absence of light. That's what darkness is. It's not so much that they're opposites. It's that darkness uh, exists because of the absence of light. And so, so when you look at just even, even hundreds of years before Jesus came, his coming was predicted with these words in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he says this in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Man, that's good. The gospel is the good news that you no longer have to wonder about in the darkness and despair of your mistakes, of your failures, of of, of sin, but you can enjoy the light of righteousness through Jesus. He offers light and life to all of us. And throughout John's gospel, we find an ongoing struggle between light and darkness. Jesus, the light of the world, he is, he is opposing and being opposed by those in the darkness. And near the end of John, we, we learn how Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest uh, followers, arrested uh, by, by, by the Roman soldiers, brought to stand trial. And we know from Scripture he received these cruel, horrific beatings that he was mocked, he was spit upon. They put purple, a purple robe on him to mock him. They, they shoved uh, a crown of thorns into his skull, and, and then they threw a cross on his back and said, take it up to that hill. And then he goes to take it up to the hill, there where he's going to hang for all these people. But before they put him up on that cross, they nail his hands, his feet to the cross. Then they put the cross up and literally there he is being despised and rejected by the very people he came to save. And then, and then he dies on that cross. They take his body down and they put him in this cold, dark, damp tomb. And there he is. And, and, and literally, if, if we stop reading John in chapter 19, oh boy, that's it. Darkness, despair, hopelessness. But you guys, here's the reality. There's a chapter 20. And in chapter 20, it's there where we read about the most wonderful event to ever take place on this earth. The resurrection. After his death on the cross, Jesus didn't stay buried because he is the life and the life could not remain dead. He arose, conquering forever the sting of death and hell. And John describes this wonderful scene with this simple phrase in verse 5. Let's look at it again. What does it say? It says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The the darkness, and and how it's worded is so great. So the darkness has done everything it could. Okay, Satan emptied the clip trying to take Jesus out. He tried everything. Ultimately, at the very end there, I've got him. He's on the cross. The life is leaving uh, his body. And you've got to imagine as Jesus is saying it is finished, Satan is also declaring victory and saying it is finished. But in reality, what happens? Jesus resurrected. He resurrected. So so literally, the darkness had done everything it could. It schemed, it plotted, but it had nothing left that it could do uh, in opposition to Jesus. Jesus took its greatest shot, and that's why we see these words that the darkness will not overcome the light. It will not overcome it. Now, now for you and me, we get to look at that, and and you know what? The last eight months, poof. Interesting, tough, challenges, things we never thought we'd be thinking about, trying to decide, trying to walk through, and pain, and and suffering, and just so many different things in the last eight months that have been so hard. And I think we are tempted to go, ugh, it's over. Like, I mean, what are we doing here? And and you know what? Satan's pulled out some pretty solid shots during this time, but guess what, you guys? Verse 5, what does it say again? 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in other words, Satan has already failed. Light will always overcome the darkness. Jesus has already overcome it. And so you and I, just as I talked about the victory he invites us into, you and I are called to be lights with the guarantee that as a light, the darkness will not be able to overcome you. He wins. It's already been decided. And so he invites you and me into walking, into being image bearers, into being lights, into the darkness. And, and I don't think I need to like do a poll on how many of you think, man, it's really dark out there. It's rough out there right now. Like I think everybody would be like, yeah, okay, it is. But he invites us to become, to be a part of a light that overcomes that darkness. And, and he even warns us, it's not like we should be surprised at what's happening. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul warns the people that, 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 that are there the church there about those that they're trying to reach and he says in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God so you guys we should not be surprised that the enemy is trying to take and wreck your testimony, this church's testimony, what we stand upon, God's word, because he is, he's, he's literally trying to take it and to distort it so people do not see the light. He will do everything he can to get people distracted away from seeing the light. And so our calling is to be the light if we're a Jesus follower. It's to reflect that victory in Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And my questions for you are really two. The first question for you is, are you right now walking in darkness? Right now, is this, is this, does this characterize your life? Like, and maybe you wouldn't have labeled that, but, but when you think about your life right now, and what's driving it? What is motivating you with the decisions you're making? What is the belief that you're holding on to? What is the faith that's driving you forward? And I want you to think about what that actually is. What you're holding on to right now. And, and, and I guess my question for you is, are you ready to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Because if darkness is all that is consuming your life, there is an absence of light. And Jesus wants to be the light and the life in you. And he invites you through his victory over sin and death, he invites you to have relationship with him because he has already paid for that separation that is, that is a part of you, those things that have defined you in the past. Jesus says, now I, I am victorious and I invite you to experience this with me. And so if you need to make him Lord and Savior of your life, it's just putting your faith, your trust, and your hope in him. It's declaring that he's Lord of your life. It's receiving Jesus and saying, I'm going to follow you from this day forward. I believe you did what you said you did. I believe you are God, and from this moment on, I'm going to follow you. And if you need to make him Lord and Savior of your life, do that right now. Do that right now. Don't wait for a prayer. Don't wait for the, the worship song. Just bow your head right now and say, Jesus, I declare you as Lord and Savior of my life. I need you. I am tired of walking in the darkness, and I want to be, be a light. 
I want to experience what only you can offer. I want to experience this victory. I, I, I want to live what, what, what Jesus came to, to, to bring. I want to live that out. And then the second uh, question I have for, for some of you is, are you actually shining the light you claim you have? Are you shining? Because that's, that's, what, that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be image bearers of Jesus. And so people should, should see, I mean, literally, Christian, Christ in. That's what we're called to be. And so when people see us, it should be a light. Wherever you're at, at your work, in your family, um, at, at your school, on your team, wherever you're at, it should be evident that you are light. Light contrasts the darkness. So it's, it's clear when you see it. And so if you're not light, but you claim to be a part of the light, if you claim to have a relationship with Jesus, there is a disconnect, you guys, that you got to deal with, that we got to make right. Because literally, like, what an exciting opportunity, what an exciting time to be placed on this earth to be a light. You guys, we got a lot of people confused. And this is an opportunity to bring truth, to bring light. And, and, and so we need, to, we need to define, are we going to do this? And so if you're not doing this, if, if light is not what's coming out of your life, uh, out of what you're saying, out of what you're doing, I challenge you to get that right with Jesus today before we leave. But you guys, I want us to get back to, once again, the reality that Jesus is God. And at the end of the day, he has overcome, he has victory, and you are invited into that. Amen? Let's pray.